Okay, so um, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about the Enneagram, which I hope is why you're here. This is your, this is your time if you came here for Jonathan's class and want to leave <laughs> to exit now, and that will be okay. It is when, like when you get on the plane and they tell you where it's going. I don't know how you make it that far and not realize it, but still apparently, apparently it must happen to somebody. Uh, so this is the time for that. And what we're going to do over the next little bit, we're scheduled for two hours and 15 minutes. I can't imagine that I have two hours and 15 minutes <laughs> to say about anything. And that, no, exactly. Um, though I'm sure my children would say that it's often felt like two hours and 15 minutes. Um, so we're going to do some practices. I, I no longer um, teach anywhere where we don't engage in spiritual practices, and that is for a couple of reasons. One is because generally um, American Christians are terrible at them, and we need practice, and specifically because folks in the restoration movement are even worse than the general <laughs> Christian public at them. But it will have a direct application for what we're going to talk about later. So we're going to enter into a practice called welcoming prayer. And it's not that we are just welcoming a prayer or welcoming ourselves to prayer, but welcoming wherever it is that we are now. So at the heart of transformation work, at the heart of Enneagram work, is dealing with where you are now, which is really difficult for two-thirds of us. And I'll tell you why that is the case later on. And it's the only reality for one-third of us. But I trust that we're all here from different parts of the country, different kinds of communities. Some of us are in cities, some in more rural contexts. Uh, some of us have very young children. Some of us have grown children. Many of us are people with teenagers who are going through their own identity crisis and coming to terms with who they are and what they want to do in the world. We're also have uh, parents at the same time who are aging and who are feeling great disruption. And the answer to that typically has been to just keep moving forward in life and doing things and not pausing to deal with where we are. So that is the point of welcoming prayer. And it's the only way to move toward transformation is to acknowledge where you are without judgment, without condemnation, um, without dismissing thoughts. One of the first things that we discover when we begin to look into the Enneagram is this tension that most of us live in between who we have told ourselves we have to be and who we have told ourselves we cannot be. So in all of these circumstances and situations, I have to be this person. And sometimes that changes dependent on environment, but I can never be this person. And all of that creates this false self and binds us. So as one of my great teachers says, personality is what shows up when you don't. So we're going to spend some time, and it is going to be uncomfortable. 
just being present. There's going to be a lot of silence because I'm guessing most of us don't get a lot of silence. So if you can get comfortable, free your hands, place your feet. Square on the floor. Thomas Keating says that welcoming prayer is the practice that actively lets go of thoughts and feelings that support the false self-esteem. It embraces painful emotions experienced in the body rather than avoiding them and trying to suppress them. It does not embrace the suffering as such, but with the presence of the Holy Spirit, we allow the Holy Spirit to enter into a particular pain, whether physical, emotional, or mental. Thus, it is the full acceptance of the content of this present moment in giving the experience over to the Holy Spirit. The false self system is gradually undermined and the true self emerges. So we talk about when we talk about the Enneagram is a tool amongst a lot of tools that helps us release the false self. So I want you to focus and sink in. Don't run away or try to fight whatever it is that comes up for you, but acknowledge it in its reality. Notice where it exists in your body. So you breathe in through your nose and release through your mouth. Keep breathing in and out. Stay with this until you experience a connection to the feeling or emotion, but not just on an emotional level, but on a physical level. Breathing in. Just take a moment now to affirm a strong response as an opportunity to reconnect with the reality of God's presence with you. Just from saying in this moment, welcome. And just whatever you're feeling. You can welcome fear. Anger, you can welcome joy or anxiety. And all that's going on in your spirit and in your body, in your life, what is it and name it. Try not to reject it, but welcome it. You're just creating a sense of awareness that this is what you actually feel. And as you welcome it, you can welcome fear or anxiety and pray 
my fear, my anxiety, my joy. You are in the presence of God. I want to invite you not to just say it and move on. Repeat it. And sit with this feeling until you experience a genuine sense that you are not fighting against it. And that the Spirit welcomes it and that God can handle your feelings. Paying attention to the physical sensation is really the best way to know if you are welcoming it. Does the sensation shift? Do you feel tightness in your stomach, your upper back and your shoulders? Clenching your feet, your fist? Signs of rejection? Furrow the brow, release it. And just accept this moment for what it is. Try your best to not wish it away or change it. But to be in it. And now we will pray. Just say to God, I give you my fear, my anger my disappointment, my heartache, my worry. God, I give you that emotion. Fill me with your spirit. It might take more than once. We would just create space for you to ask God to fill you with God's spirit. At this point, you can turn the feeling or emotion over to God and let it go. Perhaps if you haven't felt it and welcomed it in, you may experience some resistance here. So just stay in it, naming it and letting it go. And when your mind wanders, just bring it back to now. And I'll close us. God, remind us that you are here with us now. You are here with us in our fatigue, in our striving, in our anxieties, in our frustrations. God, in our joys and hopes and the blessed memories of reconnecting with people that we know and love. That you are here with us as we seek to become your people as individuals and as a group. That we could hold all that you have to offer us and to give us. And we ask it in your name, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So we were supposed to be in a much smaller room and kind of do a workshop.
So there are a couple of things about Enneagram work. There are people who study and write about the Enneagram, who read a lot about it. I don't know if there are any true experts for one reason, which is that we all come from a place within what we would call our Enneagram number. And the best way to hear about your number is from someone else who is also that number. So I'm a three on the Enneagram. And we'll talk a little bit more about what that means. But who here, who else here, just raise your hand if you have read an Enneagram introductory book or you have a good sense that you know your number? Okay, so, all right, great. How many of you have heard people talking about the Enneagram and you didn't know what they were talking about and you're just here because you want to be able to participate in conversations? Okay, so that's a wide variety of people. So the Enneagram is an ancient typology system that defines, loosely defines, nine different personality structures. These personality structures are the result of a few things. One is nature. Uh, I have a great colleague, her name is Suzanne Dion. She studied under Dr. David Daniels at Stanford, who was a physician, and then started doing Enneagram work. And from what we know from the neuroscience is that you came, I came, with some of our hardware downloaded already. That we are not purely products of nurture. It isn't everything that our mother, our father did. It's did all go back to our family of origin. Some of it came downloaded. So some of you will remember in the 90s when you would go buy a new computer and Microsoft made the computer and it had all that bloatware that you didn't want on it anyway. That's how you came into the world. <laughs> there was some stuff that was already there. There's other stuff that you responded to the world around you. And you responded for a couple of different reasons. You were seeking a kind of support or kind of love. And you found out that doing certain things in a certain way in the community, in the family of origin that you belong to, got you what you wanted, which was love, support, security, safety. And so since we're all in different families when we come into the world, um, we read our families and figure out this is who I need to be in order to get love, support, security, safety, all of that. That's the first part of that. Who do I have to be? And as we grow up, we want to be parts of different communities. There are things we want to accomplish and do with our lives. And we know that every community, you cannot have a functioning community unless that community has agreed on certain things that cannot happen in this space. So as much as people want to talk about Acceptance, the reality of acceptance is a group only exists because it is boundaried somehow. Here's how I know that. Like, at your church, um, if someone came in and said, I have been a lifelong member of the Church of Satan, and I think I'm going to keep on doing that even here, 
you would say, you cannot do that here. What happens in communities is that we have to be wise and gracious about what those boundaries are, but every community has boundaries. And to be a part of community early on in life, you adopted certain behaviors because you were motivated by a few things. So that then fractures into nine different personality typographies in the Enneagram. Now, a really smart person, a curious person would say like, how can there only be nine types of people? Which is a great question because that is not what the Enneagram does. So this gets awfully confusing, awfully fast, if you're not clear, and if you've been to like an introductory workshop or read an introductory book or a Know Your Number seminar or something like that, someone has gotten in front of the group and they have gone what I call around the circle and they have said there are nine types, each type is known by a number, and then they will say, we're gonna talk about ones, we're gonna talk about twos, we're gonna talk about threes, and they will describe what that is typically like, which is super helpful. But the only way that you can really describe other people's personality types is by talking about behaviors. But the Enneagram is not about behaviors. The Enneagram is about motivations. And this is how it's different from many other very helpful and useful typology systems. So some of you, I'm sure, have taken Myers-Briggs type indicator, maybe you're certified Myers-Briggs or Strengths Finder. When I was a junior at Abilene Christian University as a Bible major, uh, they tried to shepherd us out of ministry, at least the ones who should have been shepherded out of ministry. And that included taking a day-long test, series, a battery of personality tests. And if you, if you showed particular signs on that test, they would say, maybe insurance for you? You could do something like that? Um, but there were questions like, do you like mechanics magazines? And you would write yes or no, which is a really great question when you are trying to type for stereotypical thinking, gender stereotyped thinking, when you ask a bunch of other questions that are like that. But what that tells me is that I might or might not mechanic magazines that day. Right. There are questions like, when you go to a party, do you like to be in the corner in a one-on-one -on -one conversation, or would you rather be in the center with lots of people? Well, depends on the party. <laughs> like, there are a lot of parties like, I don't want to go to, and I'm only there because my wife made me come, and I don't like any of these people anyway, and they don't like me. And so when the one person that I know in there that I like, we're just going to hang out in the corner and talk. But if it's my birthday party, that would be rude. <laughs> I might want to be in the center, right? Like, that's a behavior that doesn't tell you anything about me, but tells you what I do in certain circumstances without the context of those circumstances. My motivations, though, my motivations have been largely the same for all of my living memory. Like what I wanted, like why did I do this? And the problem is, 
One person can have a certain set of motivations and another person a completely different set of motivations and do the same things. Right? So behavior, and this is what I love about the Enneagram, is that behavior doesn't actually tell you that much. Motivation tells you much more. So that's step one. And we won't spend a lot of time on this. I'm just giving you like a 20,000 foot view of how the entire system works. Because the book that I wrote that's coming out next week is about one particular aspect of the Enneagram and how that meets with communication. So those of you who know your number, you will know that like if you're looking at this, that next to your number are two other numbers. Those numbers in the Enneagram system are called your wings. Now, sometimes someone will hop online and they will find an Enneagram assessment test online and they'll say, this is the free test, and it'll ask seven questions, or you could take the $50 test and ask 50 questions, and everyone takes the one that's seven questions, because it's free, and they will get it, they will get feedback that says, I came up an eight, a two, and a four. But they were really close, so I don't know which one I am. Well, no one can tell you which one you are. Only you can tell you which one you are. And people who tell you what number you are, stop listening to those people. <laughs> or they will say something like, um, I'm an eight with a two wing. That is impossible because your wings have to be the numbers to the side of you. I don't know if y'all know this. That's how wings work. <laughs> so if someone is like an eight with a two wing, that's not how a wing works. We've all had chicken. Like we know how wings work. But that tells you something, your wing tells you something more about your personality structure than just I'm a four or I'm a seven. Because at different times in your life, you are going to borrow particular behaviors from your wings. Now, a couple of things about that. I don't want to get too far into the weeds. So many of you have know Suzanne Stabile. She was my teacher. I studied under her. She's been here at Pepperdine before. You've probably read The Road Back to You if you know her. That's a fabulous book to get you started. But the Enneagram is actually extraordinarily wide and worldwide. And believe it or not, different people have different ideas about how things work and come from different systems. So if you're a Christian and you learn the Enneagram or know of the Enneagram, here's how it got to you. There was nothing written on the Enneagram in, on the popular level until the 70s. And then there's a guy named George Gurdjieff who did a lot of work. Uh, Christian contemplatives have spent a lot of time with the Enneagram throughout history. And it comes to us, mostly Catholic, other streams of contemplative thought within different, like Anglican traditions. You got it most likely from Catholicism to Richard Rohr 
to Suzanne Stabile, Ian Cron, to me. That's our trajectory. But there are people like Oscar Ichazo. Uh, there are people like Claudio Naranjo. People like David Daniels. Folks all over the world who have had different experiences and have come to understand the system differently. You don't need to know all that necessarily, but it's extraordinarily robust. And the more you think you know, the more you find out there is to know. So, you know, for a long time, Suzanne um, would say that you would spend half of your life the, in, with one wing and half with the other. I don't actually know if that's true, but it seems to be true for a lot of people that I know. Also, someone like Naranjo would say, your number is the tension between your wings. That you're trying to hold together the tension between your wings. That's not terribly important, except I would not want you to be embarrassed when you're at a dinner party and you say something like, I'm an eight with a two wing and people look at you crazy. But that gives more robust sense than just, I'm a seven, I'm a six, I'm a five. It actually makes a difference. Under those numbers, you will find what we call instinctual variants, which come to us in this wonderful alliteration of sexual, self-preserving, and social. So, someone wanted to talk with me about Enneagram, and this is all background to get where we're going. I would say, I am a self-preserving three. I'm a three with a four wing, self-preserving, which means diva. <laughs> but that gives more structure to your personality because a self-preserving three, like me, looks really different from my friend Kelly who lives around the corner from me who is a, so, a sexual or one-to-one, -one, deeply invested in one-to-one -one relationships, um, three, who looks really different than I did when I was in my 20s and 30s when I was a social three. And so in my, in my book, 40 Days on Being a Three, I describe, I describe instinctual variants or what they call subtypes this way. We used to live in downtown Houston. We moved out to the suburbs. But in that house, it was three stories. And on the bottom floor was our extra bedroom. And I use that for my office. And when we were living there and I used that for my office, I spent a lot of time in that room. But then my wife's second cousin moved with, in with us. She was 20 years old, going to Houston Baptist. She needed a place to stay. So we said she can have that bottom bedroom. And when she moved into that bottom bedroom, I didn't spend that much time there anymore. None, as a matter of fact. And there was a one summer where I couldn't sleep very much. And so our bedrooms were on the third floor. And about 2 o'clock in the morning, I would wake up, I could sleep, and I would go down to the second floor. And that summer, I spent a lot of time there. And what happens is through life, your subtype changes dependent upon what you're doing, where you are. All right, so multi-layered. Then you have stress and security numbers, which there is a number that when you are in stress, that you take on behaviors that are typically associated with that number. And there are numbers when you are secure that you take on their behaviors when you feel secure. So 
here's what happens to many people. They come across the Enneagram when they are in severe stress and they say, that's my number. And it's not because they're stressed or in great security. And they say, oh, that's my number. But it's not because when stress comes, they find themselves reacting to the world in really different ways. And then they say, well, the, you know, I was mistyped. Christopher Hewitzer's book, The Sacred Enneagram, is really great for this because in the back, it's just got charts, which I love, of common mistypes. Um, because you're looking at one or two aspects of your motivation and behavior that you mistype each other. But that adds another layer to the complexity. All right? Is anyone confused yet? Okay. We'll have questions in a little bit. So you see how you're already moving. Now, after stress and security, the Enneagram has a bunch of triads inside them. And that's where we're going to spend most of our time. So I'm going to now just walk us through a quick refresher of type, um, the basic desires of type. Type desire for ones is to make the world a better place. So sometimes you have heard this called the perfectionist. Um, that's actually helpful for some ones. It is incomplete in my view. My wife is a one on the Enneagram. And if you were to come over to our house at any given time, it is not like you would assume a perfectionist house to look. <laughs> it looks like we have two teenage daughters who are really busy in a house that's really busy. They come in the house after school for some reason Every jacket, pair of shoes, book bag, can't make it more than two feet inside the door. They're strewn everywhere. We have a dog who's supposed to not shed and be hypoallergenic. That was a lie. <laughs> Lots of things going on because ones also, and this is the way that I refer to them in, in my work, is the reformer. And that's about making the world a better place. So it's not just about making sure the dishes are clean. But for some people, making sure the dishes are clean does make the world a better place. Right? And so there's a lot of activity in the life of a one. Uh, type twos need to be needed. Like this is core for twos, is the need to be needed. We're going to talk about how that shows up in a little bit. Threes, to be successful, or some would say, or to look successful. The real fear for threes is to not fail. So lots of threes haven't accomplished anything in life, but they haven't failed. <laughs> they didn't try, so they haven't failed. And that's much closer to the heart of it. Fours, to be understood and known while making meaningful connections with others. To be understood. My oldest daughter is 18. Her last day of school, of high school, is tomorrow. She is a four, and she really likes to be understood. But she also thinks, like most fours, that no one can understand me. Right? 
That's their basic need. Uh, fives, to be independent and seen as both capable and competent. So fives, are any of there fives in the room? Anybody know there's, okay. So information hoarders, like they wanna know everything. Um, they are in also another triad called competency, um, but we'll talk about that later. They believe you must protect yourself from intrusion to ensure satisfying life in a world that demands too much and a world that gives too little. Consequently, fives, also called observers, are self-sufficiency seeking, non-demanding, analytic, thoughtful, and unobtrusive, but can be withholding, detached, and overly private. Set type six. Their basic desire is to be connected to others while working toward goals that are for the common good. To be connected to others, working with others toward a common good. And by the way, if you want to see more of this, there's a great website, Enneagram Today, that my publisher, IVP, puts out. There's lots of Enneagram resources there, so you don't have to try to capture all of this. It'll be on Enneagram Today. Um, six is their fundamental belief is you gain certainty and security to assure a satisfying life in a hazardous and unpredictable world. Consequently, they see themselves as trustworthy, inquisitive, good friends, questioning, but can be overly doubt doubtful, accusatory, fearful. Sevens, are there any sevens? Just like two sevens, in the, you know why? I'm gonna do an experiment. Raise your hand if you are a three, a seven, or an eight. Okay, so that's a third of the Enneagram. That is not a third of this room. And there's a reason for that. Because we don't do stuff like this. So there's an explanation I'll get to in a minute, but I'm not surprised by that at all. And three sevens and eights will be the most tempted to leave before we are done. So sevens believe you must keep things positive and open to ensure a satisfying life and escape from a world that causes pain and imposes limitation. Consequently, sevens are optimistic, upbeat, pleasure and possibility seeking, which is a word you'll hear again in a little bit, and adventurous, but can be pain avoidant, uncommitted, and self-serving. My youngest daughter, Kate, is a seven on the Enneagram and she will wear you out. Like she is constantly going. She burns through friends because hardly anyone can keep up with her pleasure seeking. And that kind of energy, as a parent, you love, you love, you love. And that's why Kate gets what she wants. Because for us, for her, to take that energy away makes our house feel flat. When Kate's upset, everybody's upset. But she's only up, because she's a seven, she's only upset for five minutes. <laughs> Eight, um, believes you must be strong and powerful to ensure a satisfying life. There's a great fear of betrayal. Life is tough and unjust, and you must be powerful to survive. If you don't, life will take advantage of you, so they are justice-seeking. 
direct, strong, action-oriented can be overly Im impactful, excessive, and impulsive. So I've begun doing some Enneagram work with uh, corporations. And almost every eight CEO that I've ever met has one thing in common. They burn through assistance. One is because of the energy that they have. The other is because of this trait where they run over people and don't know it. And I'll share a little bit more about that in a minute. And then uh, they lead with doing their best at whatever is theirs to do while fighting injustice wherever it exists. And then nines, nines basic desire is peace and harmony, and they are willing to mediate differences between people that cause separation and result in disconnection. So the more I talk with people about this, more nines, how many nines are in the room? It's a lot of nines. We're just gonna put on some music and soap for a little bit. Um, I find peacemaking and peacekeeping that there's actually some resistance in nines to that language. Um, they don't tell you that, but there is resistance to it. But harmony, very much so. So I tell a story in the book about um, Admiral McRaven, who spoke at the University of Texas Austin. He gave this very well-known commencement address called Make Your Bed. And he talks about the importance of making your bed every day. He went to the University of Texas, uh, where my daughter will be next year, if you're interested, um, <laughs> and gave this, majored in journalism there, wrote a book called Make Your Bed, after that became so popular, and I asked nines, do you make your bed every day? All of them I asked said no. And there's a reason except one person, uh, my good friend Risa, and I said, do you make your bed every day? And she says, yes. And I asked her why. She says, because it makes my house more harmonious. This is why motivation matters more than behavior. So this is just like an overview. I thought, I suspected that uh, a couple of us would be new this is the most superficial view of the Enneagram available in the world today. <laughs> of the nine types, um, the Speaking by the Numbers book does not cover, it is not a primer for the Enneagram. There are really great books to buy uh, if you want to do that. But now we're going to talk about why it matters and how the system works for those of you who do any of the following. You love anybody, you teach anybody, you preach to anyone, you have board meetings with anyone, you are raising children, you are sitting in traffic. <laughs> because there are some things that are at work in your personality structure that are actually informative beyond the idea that I'm an 871564, whatever. But we're gonna have another practice before we launch into that. So I've asked a couple of my friends 
uh, Josh and Nick to come and uh, do, to lead us in worship for just a couple of minutes. And this will also inform what we're going to do in the second half of our time. So, guys, if you're going to come forward. Yeah, both of you. There's a a handheld mic up here. (laughs) So, Derek and Josh and Nick are all part of United Voice Worship. We do a lot of work together, chiefly the Agape Conference in November this year. No, first weekend in November in the beautiful oasis of Little Rock, Arkansas. <laughs> um, and what began kind of as a worship conference, we talk about a lot of really important things uh, facing the church. And we would love for you to be there. So if you're free the first week in November, um, that would be fabulous. But uh, before we dive in to why that matters. I want you to experience this for a second. Holy Lord, most holy Lord, you alone are worthy of my praise. Oh, holy Lord, most holy Lord, with all of my heart I sing. Well and great are you. Jesus, you're worthy of praise. Lord, you are holy and true. Great are you, Lord, most holy. Just lift your hearts this afternoon. A holy Lord, most holy Lord, you alone are worthy of my praise. Oh, holy Lord. With all of my heart, I sing. Well, in great are you, great are you, Lord. Worthy is so worthy, worthy of praise. Holy and true, great are you, Lord, most holy. With my heart, I sing great. And true, great are you, Lord, most holy. So here I am to worship, here I am to bow, and here I am to say that you're my God, and you're all together lovely, and you're all together. King of all days, and King of all days, oh, so highly exalted, glorious, glorious in heaven above, humbly you came, and humbly you came to the earth that you And here I am to worship, and 
I'll never know. Let's sing it together. And I'll never know how much it costs to see my sin upon that harmony. I'll never know how much it costs to see my sin upon one more time, sing it out. Yes, I'll never know how much it costs to see my sin upon that cross. And here I am to worship, here I am. God, we love you and we thank you that we can have spaces like this, even in the middle of an afternoon, in the middle of a wonderful time in which Sean is sharing his heart and sharing his knowledge and empowering that wisdom, Father, in our lives. We're just thankful we can worship you, that we can be free in spaces like this to do that. Father, would you open our hearts and our lives to be more in terms of self-aware. Help us to be more aware of how we're built, Father. Uh, maybe there are things that are, are uh, attached to us from generation after generation, but maybe there's something we need to unattach. I don't know what that may be, but I know that in spaces like this and, and in books that, uh, that you've blessed us with through wonderful writers like Sean, you've, you've helped us to, to be a little more conscious, Father. And I pray that that uh, would uh, change us, Father, from the inside out and help us to be more about love, more about having the agape love of Jesus, Father. Thank you for creating us the way that you have, that we've got so many different personalities. There's so much different DNA, Father. There, there's different uh, walks of life. There's different leadership styles, Father. There's, there's different things in this space, Father, but we love different because you love different. And you are uh, the handiwork, Father. You've created it. And so we're just so thankful, Father, that we're part of your creation, that we're part of your uh, 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 presence, Father, that we can be here in this space, Father, to follow you. What a, what a blessing. Would you continue to bless Sean in the, the, the ending time, the next uh, hour or so? And, and I just pray that you'll bless every person in this space, that, they, uh, that you would make known the name of Jesus, Father, and you'd help us to live our lives uh, being willing to learn, willing to take the strides and the steps that are needed, because I know this is a starving world looking for you. Amen. We love you, Father, and all that agree say this afternoon. Amen. Amen. So thank those, they got to lead worship tonight, plus they're right in the middle of the uh, worship leaders workshop, so they came over to do that. And there's, there's a reason. So I need you, I need just a th like two or three people, tell me, the best sermon you've ever heard, if you can do that in like 30 seconds, and what you think your Enneagram type is. So best sermon you think you've ever heard. And it doesn't have to be one of mine. All right, or... Okay. 
Okay, and your Enneagram number? Number two. Okay. Great, thank you. Uh, is that sermon I ever heard it by Robert Morris, and it was about the significance of tithing and how tithing is obedience and grace. Okay, and your number? Eight. Eight. All right. Okay, that worked out so perfectly. I was worried about that. So um, I had the experience, our church in Houston is pretty Enneagram aware congregation. Um, we've had multiple teachers of the Enneagram come through and do things with different groups. Lots of people um, who have studied and apprenticed like I have, some folks who are certified. And so generally speaking, when someone talks about their Enneagram number to the entire community, a good number of people know what that is. So, two years ago, before COVID, I guess this is three years ago, I gave what I normally do is at one of our campuses, I was preaching. And my sermon went something like this. Your life is the result largely of your choices. The most controversial thing that I have ever said is that your choices make a difference. And for some reason, people really don't like it. Now, you may not be responsible for everything that's happened in your life, but you chose to marry him or her. You chose to buy that house. You chose to go to that college. You chose to eat the pie and not work out. Those were your choices. That was the beginning of the sermon. And because the point of that sermon eventually was the choice to love, that loving people is actually a choice that we make. So the sermon is over, and one of my good friends, um, her real name is Michelle, she's called Autumn in the book, uh, comes up to me and says, that's the most Enneagram 3 sermon I have ever heard. And I thought, wow, she's absolutely right. That made all the sense in the world to me, the way that my personality is structured. And I would not take back any of it in terms of its truthfulness. And she's an eight on the Enneagram, so she didn't have any trouble coming to tell me this. <laughs> but I left that conversation wondering, if I did that just now, in a quarter of a century of being in ministry, how many times have I been talking to myself? And what if there was a tool that would help me get out of my own personality structure to speak more efficiently and effectively into the hearts of people? The folks who were brave enough to talk about the sermons that I've meant the most to them, those fit that personality structure. Tithing, that's something you do. I remember Sarah's sermon. That's something that you feel. Rick's sermon on the chairs, for those of you who have seen that, like, that was a walkthrough, a historical walkthrough of Churches of Christ and a restoration movement that fits for what a five likes. And so guess what? I have been 
and you have been talking to yourself. And there are certain things that resonate with you because of your personality structure. It's not that it was the best thing ever. It wasn't the most thoughtful. It wasn't the most graciously given. There are communications, ways, patterns of communication that are more meaningful to you because of your personality structure than others. That doesn't make them any more or less valid. So if that's the case and you care about people, it should be your job to figure out a way to speak more effectively to other people. How do you get your kids to clean their room? Well, I'll tell you how. Threats. <laughs> it's a time-honored tradition in parenting. Threats are so it's carrot or stick. Um, but what if there was a way to speak more to their personality? And so I discovered that there's a part of the Enneagram that I felt really helpful. So Jack Cornfield says the unawakened mind tends to make war against the way things are. And I think the best thing forward for us is not to judge how other people see the world but to deal with the way it is, to deal with the way we are. Ananias Nin says, we don't see the world as it is, we see the world as we are. So, this is at the heart of speaking by the numbers. So, there are multiple triads inside the Enneagram system. That is just a number of three. And these are all in the book, so you don't have to take a picture of them. You can just buy the book. It's at the bookstore. It's at the bookstore. Um, yeah, see? Um, so all of us come into the world with three operative intelligence centers, according to Enneagram wisdom. Those operative intelligence centers are thinking, feeling, and doing. We did an exercise at the beginning. It was about feeling. We sang together. It was about doing, because we couldn't go out and build a house. <laughs> and most of this time is about thinking. All of us have operative within us all three intelligence centers, thinking, feeling, and doing. We all do all three, but because of nature and nurture, you are dominant in one. That dominant intelligence center is supported by the second, and you are repressed in the third. So here's how we talk about that in Enneagram language. Early in life, like we all come into the world balanced like a three-legged stool. And early in your life, you led with one intelligence center, thinking, feeling, or doing. And that center was wounded. And you told yourself, that hurt so bad. I'm never doing that again. So you decided that in this system, 
my church system, my school system, probably my family of origin. That, th that center of intelligence is not appreciated here. So I'm going to pull it back and not use it. And you've come to over rely on one and hardly ever rely on the third one. That does not mean that you don't ever do the third one. We all think, we all do, we all feel you can't make it through life, you can't make it through the day without that. But that one of those has become repressed in you. Another way to think about this, the way that I like to think about it, is what costs you energy. One of those gives you energy. One of them costs you energy. And so it's not that you can't do it. It's not that you won't do it. You're just really tired when you have to. And you're really very, very, very tired when you have to again and again and again and again in a season. And you say, this stinks. So what we're trying to do, or at least what I'm trying to do as a communicator, is to balance the centers. Um, when we are, we are born, we are balanced between all three centers, and much of life's work is getting back to some state of balance. So let's take a look at this, which is from my friend John Singletary at Baylor University. These charts are in the book. He's so gracious to allow me to use them because I did not want to recreate them. Um, and then I'd just have to steal them, and that would be bad. So, I want you to get your head around three of the Enneagram triads. If you are eight, nine, and one, you are in what is called the anger or doing the body triad. That is your triad. That is the way that you take in information. That is the way that you express information. Um, eights, nines, and ones, you are all in the same triad in terms of how you receive the world. Twos, threes, and fours. You are all, we are all in the feeling triad or the shame triad. And we take in the world through feeling. And then five, sixes, and sevens, you're in the head or the thinking triad and you take in the world through a type of thinking. Now, in every triad, there's one number that expresses that almost always outwardly. There's one number that expresses it almost always inwardly. And the number in the middle has an exchange of that energy constantly going. So what that means is, um, if you are two, three, and four, you're in the feeling triad, but if you're a three, if you're a two, you express it outwardly. You know everyone's feelings. You're concerned with people's feelings. If you are a four, you are mostly concerned with your own feelings. <laughs> this is why things like authenticity matter so much to you. This doesn't feel authentic to me. That's why for fours, emotion is so complex. We were walking, I was walking a group through um, the Enneagram about three years ago. 
we had a guest come in. She's a four. She's a great friend of ours. And she was talking about what it's like to be a four. And I asked her, I said, Jen, is it possible for something to be interesting and not be complicated? And she looked at me like I had three heads coming out of my one head. And she's told me, like, it is impossible for her to have one emotion at a time. All of that is inward. But for threes, that energy goes in and out. Five, sixes, and sevens, thinking. For fives, it is all inward thinking, the inner world. For six, it goes in and out. That's why sixes ask so many questions or seeking um, answers because they are actually thinking in a particular way to try to assure security. And then sevens, um, it's all about, like, I want to think, like, I'm looking at you. I'm expressing my thinking outwardly. That's why sevens love, like, planning fun things and doing fun things. It's all expressed outwardly. Eights, their anger is all expressed outwardly. For ones, it's all expressed inwardly. That's where the perfectionism comes from. The world ought to be a certain way, and they are mad at themselves that it's not that way. And when they're tired of being mad at themselves, they're mad at you, but they were mad at themselves first. And then for nines, it goes in and out. And they don't want to feel, imagine what it's like to be a person whose primary desire in life is harmony, but you're an anger triad. So that is enough to, for you to spend reading for the next year and a half just understanding how triads work. But there is another triad that's equally important, which is what I was trying to get after in the book. Because helping people do what they already do really well can be useful, but it's not help, as useful as helping people do what they struggle with, to help them gain some energy in intelligence center where they struggle, and that's called stances. Now, in this is where it gets complicated, and this is why there are charts in the book, charts and graphs in the book. But you can see it here, the aggressive stance. Aggressive stance numbers are threes, sevens, and eights. Dependent stance numbers are ones, twos, and sixes. Withdrawing stance is four, fives, and nine. And stance describes the intelligence center in which you are repressed. This is the one that costs you the most energy. So again, triad, the center of intelligence, where you are dominant. Like, that's your go-to. That's what you do without any thought. Stance, or what my friend Suzanne Dion calls energy flow, is where you are repressed. This is what costs you the most energy. So, aggressive stance, threes, sevens, and eights. Threes, sevens, and eights are feeling repressed. Dependent stance, or with compliant stance, some people call it reactive stance, are ones, twos, and sixes. Um, and dependent stance 
are thinking repressed, which is where all ones, twos, and sixes get mad at me for saying that. Because they say they think all the time. Withdrawing stance, fours, fives, and nines are doing repressed. This is why they don't make up their beds. So this is the way that I describe it in the book. For your hearer or your child, the board, the elders, whoever it is that you're talking to, for your hearer, their triad, feeling, thinking, or doing, reveals which intelligence center is dominant in their personality, how they take in information. A hearer's stance, dependent, aggressive, or withdrawing, determines which intelligence center is repressed in their personality, how they respond negatively to the information. The aggressive stance is feeling repressed with feelings, and these are the definitions, with feelings defined as acknowledging and appreciating their own feelings and the feelings of others. This is why um, the young woman named Danny on my staff who did these slides for me told me two months ago that I had repeated, I have repeatedly hurt her feelings. And I had no clue, none, because I am feeling repressed. I have trouble acknowledging my feelings and the feelings of other people. That's the definition of being feeling repressed. The compliant stance, dependent stance, ones, twos, and sixes are thinking repressed. With thinking, now this is, I want you to be clear about this because when you hear you're thinking repressed, I've never heard anybody jump and go, oh yeah, that's me. <laughs> thinking, thinking is defined as gathering and sorting information and analysis and making plans. Gathering, sorting information, and making plans. And the withdrawing stance, fours, fives, and nines, are doing repressed. With doing being accomplishing and pleasure seeking. So both sides of all three of those definitions are really important. Accomplishing and pleasure seeking. So what happens is you get a mix. Aggressive stance, defined in the book as moving against others. Threes, sevens, and eights, the way we work in the world is we move against others. We have to have resistance to make life just interesting. So I was driving to our downtown campus um, a couple of weeks ago, and there was hardly any traffic that day. I think it was a Thursday or a Friday, and I had to go and, and shoot the sermon video uh, for online. And there was hardly anyone there. And I absolutely hate traffic. Hate tra I, I don't go places sometimes because I don't want to deal with the traffic. And there was hardly any. And I thought for a second, oh, this is great. And then I thought, this is terrible. Because there's nothing to accomplish if there's no traffic. Like, there's no one to beat. There's no competition. Now, if you're a three, seven, and eight, like you have to move against things, but for different reasons. And this is why motivation matters. Eight, 
Eights move away. Another way I describe it in the book is demand, demand regardless of. So that might be a better way to think about it in terms of the aggressive stance. We move in the world regardless. Eights demand autonomy regardless of others. Sevens demand security of others. And threes demand attention regardless of others. That's why it's called the aggressive stance. Aggression, assertiveness is our way of being in the world. And to be an aggressive, assertive person means you have come to devalue feelings, both your own and other people's, because you are moving through the world regardless of. Now, dependent stance. My wife is a one. Here is the definition of what it means to be a one. I was going to speak someplace, it was a Friday morning. She has a practice of getting up and doing yoga in the mornings. So I get up, I've got an early flight, I'm getting the last of my things together, I'm getting out of the door. She doesn't do her yoga and then is mad at herself later for not doing yoga that morning because she was quote unquote getting Sean out the door. She did nothing to get me out the door. She said this when our daughters were little. And people asked her what her day was like, staying at home with the girls. And she said, well, first, you know, I get up and start making breakfast and lunch for the girls, and I get Sean out the door. It's like, what did you do to get me out the door? She didn't do, there's no, I made the coffee. I made breakfast. But if you are an independent stance person, ones, twos, and sixes, your move is not against others. Your move is toward others. That's how you navigate the world, which is why you are thinking repressed. Because what thinking repression is, thinking repression is about communicating and getting your identity thoughts from outside of yourself. It is seeking guidance from outside of yourself. That's what makes it thinking repressed. Um, this is what a conversation sounds like with a dependent person. Um, what do you think I ought to do about? Where do you want to go for lunch? What do you think about? And dependent stance people are verbal processors which drives aggressive stance people crazy. Like, get on with it already, decide, move on, I don't care. But they are moving toward. One of our first fights in our marriage, um, I was still mad about the fight, and she's, Rochelle says something, she literally says, this is before we knew the Enneagram, and she says, I'm trying to move toward you. And that's exactly true. So twos, move toward others to earn attention. That's why twos have a great need to be needed. They all often settle for appreciation when they really want love. Ones move toward others to earn autonomy. And sixes move toward others to earn security. So when, like, when a six comes to you and they are talking about something having to do with their life and a decision that they have to make, something you should know about your six friends, they have already made the decision. 
what they are wanting is confirmation of their decision because they are seeking guidance from outside of themselves. You see how that works? And then withdrawing stance, fours, fives, and nines, they are doing repressed um, pleasure seeking. I mean, like a five won't go on vacation until the budget is exactly as it has been. My, my uh, executive pastor at our church is a five. And he got a brand new Ford Mustang Mach 1 electric at the end of last year. We come out of a meeting. We're all walking to our cars. I was like, Ramon, you got a new car. Yeah. Uh, then he went on to explain to me for 15 minutes about how trading in the car he just got last year and with the rebate you get for electric cars and all this, how all of the money made sense. And I'm like, dude, I just noticed that you got a new car. I do not care. You don't have to justify it. Um, but that is their, the, their move is to be doing repress, which means like they shouldn't even seek pleasure. All right, so fours, fives, and nines. One of the fun things I did in the book is because this was actually, I think fours, fives, and nines are the hardest because everyone has to do something. So the easiest repression to hide is thinking repression because it sounds like you're seeking advice and counsel. The hardest to be repressed in is doing because you have to do something every day. But that's why fours, fives, and nines at the end of the day are so exhausted because they've had to do to function in the world the thing that costs them the most energy. So fours, move away to gain attention. So you've seen, you've probably heard fours described as having like a push-pull relationship where it's like they want you close and they push you away, they want you close and they push you away. Um, our daughter came home maybe about four weeks ago and I really can't even remember what happened. That was super traumatic, which just tells you that I'm feeling repressed. <laughs> and I said to her, like, so I said, Malia, I don't know. Like, she goes up to her room and spends a long time up there. And I said, Malia, when stuff like this happens, I don't know whether you want to be left alone or you want me to come get you. And she said, I don't either. Um, but that's how fours operate to get, because what she's wanting is I'm going to go to my room and see which parent comes to get me. And it's never me. It's always her mother who is moving toward. Now imagine a dynamic where you've got someone who is constantly withdrawing and you've got a partner in that relationship who's constantly moving toward. This is what you have. <laughs> so you have to like set up some parameters how this is going to function. And if you don't know this about yourself, then you're going to constantly be in relational turmoil, or you're going to think there's a problem in our relationship. It's like, no, but when you know, oh, she just withdraws sometimes. And like, I need something to be against. 
Like, I need some resistance in life. Um, I need a certain amount of attention. Like I said, I'm a three with a four wing, and crucial to both those definitions is the word attention, which is why I'm not kidding when I just say diva. Like, I go, with, I go so long without getting any attention, and then that's where problems creep in. But for me to grow, I have to go so long without any attention. And nines move away from others to gain autonomy. Just leave me alone, let me decide. Here's, uh, I had a great friend on staff with me who was a nine. Um, and I said, Brian, when I need feedback from you, what's the best way for me to get it? And he said, ask me and give me 24 hours to think about it. So a good friend of mine who's a three went on sabbatical last year. She sent me a text. She goes, okay, we're both threes. Like, how can I get the best out of this sabbatical? And I said, your first two weeks, you have to do something, go someplace where you are completely alone. So you're not grafting off other people's feelings and assuming that they're yours because we are repressed in knowing our own feelings. So what you will see is triads and stances on this chart, on this graph. And what you will notice is that in each triad, is a stance. So in each triad, one of the stances is represented. So is anyone confused yet? OK. And I will say again, that's why there are charts in the book. Um, and I told, our, I told my editor, we have to have charts in the book. So. What happens in discourse is you get someone in front of an audience, a group of people. See our sevens leaving. <laughs> I called it. Um, you get someone in front of a group of people, or you're sitting down at a board meeting, or you're sitting down with one of your children. And it's not just that you are one number and they are a different number. It's that they have a completely different dominant intelligence center than you. And it works in particular ways. And they are repressed in particular ways. And there's a lot of discernment in knowing when to allow that to be as it is, have the awareness and appreciation for the personality structure of another person, and when you want to, as Suzanne Stabile says, help someone bring up their repressed center. So my wife decided the November before COVID, that before the girls left, that we should all take a trip to Paris. And I said, OK, the girls have always wanted to go to Paris. Um, it seemed like it was lining up for us to do that. And I said, OK, Rochelle, I'm OK with us going through the time, expense, all of that. But I know she is thinking repressed. 
And I said, but this is your project from beginning to end. Do not ask me about it. Don't ask me to confirm anything. And she said, well, can I ask you about X, Y, and Z? And most of that was about budget. She's a dependent stance person looking for guidance from outside. And I'm an aggressive stance person who does things regardless of. And when you come to something, a big trip like that, knowing this, you get a sense that this might actually become a problem and going to Paris is not something I want us to fight about. So to help us both, it's got to be her project. We have still not gone to Paris. I mean, that's mostly that's COVID, but <laughs> it makes for a good story. Um, so talking about repression, what I want us to understand is that place in you that is repressed, if you're feeling bad about that, what you need to know is that's the purest part of you. Because whenever it was wounded, it hurt so bad that you surrounded it and said, I will never be hurt like that again. And to this day, it is pure because it has been so protected. You haven't risked letting it out in the wild. But because it's been so protected, it's the most immature because it hasn't developed. So think about a baby's head. It's all soft. But if it stays soft, things that would cause a headache, something falls on you, you bang it on a counter, things that might even cause it to bleed, if it stays soft, it could become life-threatening. So what we want to do is develop the part of you that is the most pure so that you can bring balance to your stool. Five years ago, I decided I should probably go to therapy. I don't have a history of trauma. I'm very grateful for that. But there were some things that I wanted to get some clarity on. And so I found, um, I found a therapist. And Houston is the biggest small town in the world. And our church has a certain reputation in around town. So my, my first question is always, um, my first question I was looking for therapists was like, have you ever heard of me? And I was shocked by how many had. And I said, well, forget it. Not you then. Next. Because I wanted someone who didn't know me at all. And I go into therapy, and he asked me, what do you want to accomplish? And I said, it seems like people feel a lot of things, and I don't understand what that is. 
And so he's like, well, it's not that complicated. What are you feeling right now? And I looked at him like, like what are you talking Like, I feel like I'm sitting on this couch. <laughs> and he said, well, there are only a few, you know, like start, start with the basics, like mad, sad, glad, like what's closest? And that's a very real experience of my life is that I am so disassociated from what I feel. But I know very, very well what you feel. I think that's one of the ways that I'm halfway competent in my duties, in, in my vocation, is I actually know what other people feel. I just don't use feelings to make decisions for myself. I grew up in a house that said things like this. Feelings aren't facts. Feelings change. All those things are true, but in an environment that talked about feelings like that, what does a child learn? No value. My dad grew up in Jackson, Mississippi in the 60s, was really involved in the civil rights movement, um, went to college on a music scholarship, became a school teacher, became a vice principal, retired as from the superintendent's office. He'd always tell me a lot about, I, mean, I remember my dad saying very clearly when I was a kid, um, like as a point of pride, he says, you know, I've never gone a day in my life without work. I'm 47, my dad's been retired for a while. Do you know what is true of my life? I've never gone a day without work. How you got here, wasn't an accident, but it left some things out. And so the work, and this is for many of us, the work of a lifetime is to bring that up. So you have a response to the world that comes out of your dominant center that protects your repressed center. And to be whole, to bring balance to your stool, is to work on that center, whether it's thinking, feeling, or doing. And this is the kind of thing that might take you forever. But if you are a communicator, if you are a communicator, you have a challenge of not just speaking to five generations in a church community, but like you've got students in your classroom. My wife teaches fifth grade. There, there are reasons that some of her students respond to some things and others don't. Like she's got a task ahead of her to speak to intelligence centers. One of the guys in my small group works for Exxon. And we were talking, he's got it, he having to go to Belgium or someplace and negotiate a deal and he wanted to run by me his pitch. And I was like, okay, we can talk about it. You know, we're sitting around small group eating nachos or whatever, and I'm just thinking he's going to go and have a meeting in Belgium. It's not that big of a deal. A uh, couple of weeks later, I'm at Astros game. Me and my friend Ryan are there. We get a text from Drew. He just got back in the States. He says, I closed the deal. And we were like, great. He's like, that's $5 billion. I was like, well, I'm glad we talked about it. <laughs> because what he had done was he had put together a presentation that was all data. So if you're a five as a communicator, 
you're going to over-rely on your triad and under-rely on feelings because it doesn't matter to you. Like, you're going to give all of the data you can. Um, the founding pastor of the church where I serve is an eight. When Harvey came through, he had gone to Waco where his extended family was. I was in Salado. If you don't know Texas, those are only about 40 minutes from each other. Harvey came through, crushed the city. We lost a house in Harvey. He picks up the phone. He's an eight. He is the king of all disasters. And in about 25 minutes, we had raised half a million dollars. Over the course of the next two years, we raised um, a little over $4 million, and we had full-time staff that we hired for those two to three years just doing Harvey work. I um, went to my ophthalmologist, and I had on uh, just some church-branded clothing, and she begins to tell me about how she lost her house during Harvey. And then she talked to me about the trouble with FEMA, with her own insurance company, and then she patted me on my shoulder and she says, but you all, you saved my house. She didn't give me a discount or anything, <laughs> which she should have. But we only did that because he's an eight. But you know what else? I had to pull him aside about two weeks into this. And I said, um, if you're not careful, we're gonna do a lot of stuff for Harvey and not have any staff left when it's over. So I was just Enneagram aware that both he and I and some other people in leadership are the kind of people who just go off and do stuff. We're aggressive personalities. So what does this mean for you and your church? Look around your eldership. Who's in that room? So when Chris gets up to preach at Ecclesia, um, our founding pastor, there is always something to do because he's an eight. There's very little to feel. There's always something to do. He's going to run us ragged. I've had other preachers where folks have come to me and they said, you know what? I like him. He's a good guy. But I just wish he would cry every now and then, as if you could manufacture it. There are people not getting spoken to. And there are folks who just want to sit around and think about theology, ecclesiology, all day and never do anything. Your church probably is dominant in one of the intelligence centers. And you have come to believe that that's the only intelligence center that actually matters or that that's the most important thing. And all of this is not a mystery. Like, this is how people are wired, structured. And the key, then, is to acknowledge the way that it is, acknowledge the way that you are, and then work on what's repressed, thinking, feeling, doing. So now when I write messages, I write at the top of my paper, thinking, feeling, doing. How do we make sure that we're speaking to every intelligence center? And if not in this one message, over a season or a period of time. And then who gets to give those messages? Um, is it someone who's dominant in one of those to the exclusion of the others? So 
A lot more to say about that. The last chapter of the book, I just give like helpful hints. What's also in the book, if you're interested in getting it, is I explain in greater detail each of the stances, and then there is a sample talk that's designed for that stance and what each one of those stances needs most. So um, why is it important to use stories for aggressive types? Why is it important to focus on purpose for uh, dependent types? Why is it important to give people something to do that's constructive that they can get their arms around and how you go about that? So I know that that's a lot, especially if an hour and 40 minutes ago you walked in here and you didn't even know your number. So there's a ton of content and work to think through. Um, visuals are really helpful. But I do have, um, I think maybe let's just do questions, thoughts. Yeah, questions, concerns, thoughts for about five minutes. And if you have a question, let me know what your number is. Yeah. Okay. Shocking you went first. Yeah, that's actually why triads and stances are so important, because you get bigger groupings. And so is this a person that's moving toward, moving away from, or moving against? And you can kind of get a sense of that over time, instead of saying, matter of fact, a lot of Enneagram teachers don't start with your number, they start with stances. Because that helps you get a sense of, okay, I think I might be this, but I, can narrow it down using like, oh, I really am a person that moves against others most of the time. And what's hard about that at work is that your number is gonna show up more clearly at home. Um, because work is work sometimes, you have certain things. So what is it like when you get home? Um, and so I would start there. And so Suzanne's, when I turned in the manuscript for this book, I said, like, it's a pretty good speaking book, but it's probably the best book on stances that, that'll be out there. Um, but Suzanne actually wrote a book on stances at the same time, which I haven't finished, and they're both, I think, pretty clear. Um, <clears throat> and fortunately, because I studied under her, we use a lot of the same language. So I would start with The Journey Toward Wholeness, kind of read through that book, give you a clear idea. These two books will give you a clear idea of stance, and you can begin to start putting things together. Um, <clears throat> and if you want to know, what somebody is, get the road back to you, and you say, hey, if you think you know, you've got an elder who's a three, for instance, say, read this chapter and tell me, does it sound like me? Does it sound like me? <clears throat> and if they come back and say to you, I don't, maybe, but it sounds an awful lot like me, like they've given you a clue. Now you start getting in the, in the neighborhood. So I don't want to complicate things more, but there are, so stance is also called Hornovian groups, Hornovian groupings. There's another set of three called harmonic triads, and usually when someone is mistyped, they haven't missed it by much, even though they think they are. They said, I could be a seven, I could be a three, but those don't seem the same. Well, they're in the same stance, 
or when someone says, I don't know if I'm a one or a three or a five, because lots of people I know think that I'm a five. I was like, no, we're actually in the same harmonic group, which answers a different question. Um, stances answers the question, um, how we get what we want. Harmonic groups answer the questions, um, <clears throat> excuse me, um, answers the question, um, our coping style. Like, what do we do when we're in trouble? So that's outside the scope. But I would start with that. Start with stances and see what rings true. Here and then. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's a great question. Okay, three, sixes, and nines. I didn't talk about this. I do talk about this in the book on page 56 because it is a big deal. <clears throat> three, sixes, and nines are what are called the shock points or the anchor points in the Enneagram. There are some schools that believe that there are only three numbers in the Enneagram, and those are three sixes and nines, and everything else is a derivative of those numbers. Also, three, six, and nine are constantly moving. So they are the most mobile numbers in terms of behavior on the Enneagram. So when I turn in a book, I am severely in nine space. I'm tired, I don't want to do anything. This is the time I sit down and, you know, veg out on Netflix. But what, you, what, I, what I want you to see is so it's a matter of using that intelligence center. So threes are feeling dominant, they feel the room, they don't use feelings, right? Um, nines are doing dominant, the gut triad. Um, but they struggle to get things done. Remember, this is the energy flow all the time because they are wanting autonomy, and they kind of lose themselves. Sixes are, are looking for security. And so, not to make anything even more... <laughs> okay. Because you, you know there are two kinds of sixes. Are you a six? Okay. There are two kinds... Who are sixes in the room? Okay. There are two kinds of sixes. Phobic sixes and counterphobic sixes. Counterphobic sixes often look like eights uh, because both have, a ba have a, their basic passion is fear. Uh, phobic sixes move away from their fear. Counterphobic sixes move toward their fear. So they often look like eight. But then when it comes to um, the Enneagram, you will see because there is all three triads have all three stances, twos are supported by... Um, ones, so twos, ones, twos, and sixes are thinking repressed, um, but ones, so they, they borrow, two borrows from one, four borrows from five, three has no one to borrow from outside of their triad. So they're feeling dominant and feeling repressed in the same space. It's about how you use it. That's why sixes have done thinking like, when they come to you and ask for advice, they've already made the decision, but because they move toward and they are gaining information from outside of themselves, they will still ask people. Like, three sevens and eights, for instance, once they've made a decision, they're not asking anybody else. Like, they've already made the decision. That's how that works. So I, 
um, I knew it was come up. So it's on page 56 in the book. That's but then even at that, there are two kinds of threes, two kinds of sixes, and two kinds of nines when it talks about stance. So that's probably beyond the scope of what we have time for today. But that's why the question, how can there only be nine types of people, is really it's just revealing of how much work someone's done. But that's a great question. It's just intricate. Do you have the same question? Um, that's a good question. Um, let me, it's making sense. Uh, the problem in the shock points is making sense of how to use what other people are using. So like for instance, nines see and interpret the world through the doing center, but they don't use doing to make sense of their world. Where eights use doing to make sense of the world. Um, sixes are repressed thinking, but they are still seeking guidance from outside of themselves because they don't know what to do with their own thinking. Does that make sense? Threes are feeling dominant, but they don't know what to do with their own feelings. So they're there. It's just a confusion and mystery about what to do with this center or how to use it. And so the unique challenges, like I've, I described some for threes. Um, Nines can get very lethargic, and as even as pressure mounts or something big, nines have to have a great deal of purpose to get into doing. So if you are speaking, talking to a nine, you're trying to enlist them into something, like if it's, and this is true for fours, fives, and nines, if it doesn't have a significant purpose, they are not interested. Like it has to have a significant purpose that only they find significant. Like, if you find it purposeful, that's not enough. <laughs> so my, my friend TJ hosts a great Enneagram podcast called Around the Circle. And so I was talking with him about that sermon introduction I shared with you earlier about choices. And he says, you know what? I would hear that, and I, wouldn't, I, would, I would not disagree with any of it, but I don't care. <laughs> it's just not significant enough, like making the bed is not significant enough. So he says he makes the bed every morning because it's significant to his wife. And she's significant enough, but in and of itself. So you have to connect with purpose for fours, fives, and nines uh, in a way that is personally meaningful to them. That's a great question. Okay. Um, to make it significant. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think uh, the EI9 or the IE9 is probably where I would go. Um, or to narrative Enneagram. But I would start with EI9 um, in terms of here's the thing. I'm not a great fan of assessments, but I, I, I know that's because I come from a school that's not great fans of assessments. But I think some Enneagram teachers are right when they say, like, 
people who don't know the system aren't going to invest a whole day in going to a workshop or a seminar. Uh, so that's an easy on-ramp. So for that, I'm, but that's where I would start. One of, uh, one of my good friends at our church uh, is um, certified through them, and she really knows what she's talking about, so I have a high opinion of their work. No. What would you recommend the best way if we don't we don't particularly care for the assessment? So how do we find our team member as opposed to taking an online test? Yeah, so the difficulty with, it's not a problem. The difficulty with online tests is uh, it's hard to assess for motivation. So, you know, Christopher Hewart's book, The Sacred Enneagram, Helen Palmer's book, uh, the Complete Enneagram, Beatrice Chestnut's book, those are a little bit bigger. Um, obviously, The Road Back to You that Suzanne and Ian did, those, The Road Back to You is probably the shortest, simplest primer because it's got lists, it's got great, short, crisp um, descriptions, and then I would say, I would take it to a person who knows me well and ask more honestly, like, I think I'm this. Read this chapter for me and tell me what you think. And some, you know, our friends, our family members, our partners oftentimes know us a whole lot better than we think we do. But people get mistyped all the time. And that's not something to run away from or be ashamed of. Um, it's more than a snapshot in life, but it has a lot of context around it. So that's where I would start. Either sacred, I would start with sacred Enneagram or the road back to you. And I list those, all those books are listed in this book, so you, um, where to get started. Yeah? I can't, but I can show you. Okay. It's in the bookstore, so it doesn't release until Tuesday, but they got here early, so they're in the bookstore here. And if you want to, I've got a coupon code if you want to buy them from IVP directly. I think it's like 30% off. Um, but that doesn't help me chart on Amazon, and I'm a three, and that's what I want. Um, so, um, so you can get, or if you just won't remember like the title and the look of it, you can come grab one of these. And if you go to... Um, if you order it from IVP, you get 30% off and free shipping for those of you who might not be Amazon Prime members or opposed to Amazon or something like that. I have no idea. I mean, I will be someplace. <laughs> so here, because um, we'll, we'll leave here, so I will stay here for the next 15 minutes or so. So if you want to grab it now, I'll still be here until about... 415, 420. So if you just wanted a copy or, you know, find somebody to sign it for you, just put my name. So if you, there, there's, there's, a, there's a guy who actually works for my, a friend of mine who works for my company and we just, I send, take books to his house and whenever anyone wants a signed copy or wants to buy a signed copy, he signs them and sends them. So if you want a real signed copy, you catch me. So, but if somebody just out of the, off the street, they don't know my signature from anybody else's signature. You can't even read it. It's, you see an S and a P. That's it. So I'm all about efficiency. I tell you, 
I don't hide from the fact that I'm a three. Like, I streamline this process. <laughs> Any other questions? Thank you guys so much. Oh. Maybe. Is that where we kind of certain things stick on us? No, like you. That would not make, what would keep it from making a two from being serious if they heard you say Right. Some of that's just um, down, just like what comes downloaded in you. And some of it is just the rest of your personality. And like we all respond often to the same stimuli very differently. Um, and it also, so remember, the part of you that becomes repressed because it was wounded was the part of you that you are starting to lead with. So my brother, I have an older brother, um, who is a seven. So we're both aggressive stance people. Um, but we are, he is super fun-loving um, and uh, kind of like the center of attention all of the time, like knows everybody in a room. And, and we just responded to life differently, but we're both aggressive types. Two good friends of mine who live around the corner from us, Katie and Kelly, are both different numbers, but they both married nines. Um, and you, when you sit down and hear people's stories, like, oh, this makes sense. So. I was in Puerto Rico earlier this week uh, with a group of folks and talking Enneagram over dinner. And so like, none of us married who we married on accident. Like it has more to do with our personality structure, parts of our personality structure that we don't even know um, than, we, than we realize. So this is why um, Helen Palmer's book, The Enneagram in Work and Love is really great resource because it'll, what is typical, right, for a, a nine and a two, a five and a four? Uh, it kind of goes through all of those combinations. And I use it a lot with, um, I use it a lot with premarital couples. So we all have them, we have them read the road back to you if they're not Enneagram aware. And then say, this is, these are possible points of tension. And I'll also use um, prepare. I'm prepare, equip, certified. So we put a lot of tools in front of people just to give a sense of what's typical. But everyone's not the same, and so that we don't respond to the same stimuli the same way. And so our, we get structured differently, and we get defended differently. We have different coping styles, which is a way of saying how we solve problems. Um, but there are oftentimes kids in the same house, oftentimes, aren't the same number, but very frequently are the same stance, or they marry people who are the same stance. So that's a great question. Any, any more? Well, thank you for
being here.